you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Romans 12, 1 through 2. Hear these words from Romans 12, 1 through 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Yeah, we're going to be looking at uh, just verse 1 today. We're reading verse 1 and 2. We're going to be looking at verse 1, though, particularly. So let me begin with uh, just a, an, an aha moment I had. Uh, when, when I was uh, a high school stu- uh, student, I had the opportunity and the privilege to, to be a Sylvan Hills Bear. That was my high school, and I got to, to play football for the high school. And I, I'd, I, I'd been playing football uh, all of my life, uh, well, since I could walk and run, and we played out in front of our house, in our backyard, on the streets, uh, anywhere in the field. We played all the time. That was one of the things we did as, as kids. And so we played football. And, and uh, what, what's interesting is we just did that for fun. But what I realized when I became a member of the team in high school is that there were people's jobs that revolved around football. <laughs> I thought that was the funniest thing because, anyway, as we know, we live in Norman, Oklahoma, which football is a big business. But I was fascinated that that me, uh, myself, and, and all these other high school kids uh, would, would have game film. They would have game film of us. They would film us, and we would, every Monday after the game on Friday night, we would gather on Monday, and the coach would have, the coaches would have spent a lot of, an inordinate amount of time during the weekend dissecting our game film. This is us playing football. Like, they watched us play football over and over again running the plays back, seeing how everything went, and then presenting that to us on Monday afternoon, and we watched game film. I remember one game in particular, Jonesboro, Arkansas, is where we were playing, and, and uh, on that game, I was, I was a lineman. I was blocking a guy who was way bigger than me. It was a brutal assignment. And at the, in the fourth quarter, I was running behind the play on a reverse that went actually a good play, and then all of a sudden, someone destroyed me. Like, I, I went down. And I couldn't breathe, and it was the worst, the worst anyone's ever hit me in my life. And so uh, I got up uh, barely and, and stumbled off the field, and then uh, we punted the ball and then came back out. And I was so angry that someone had hit me from the side, and I didn't even notice it, that, that I assumed it was the guy who I was blocking. And so in fury and rage, we snapped the ball, and I grabbed him, and I started just punching him. And like, like I, try, I wanted to kill him. Like at that point, so he he did not like that, and and they, we, we, they had to be separated. I didn't get a penalty. It was amazing. It was incredible. Uh, but uh, like the game was almost over. We ended up. I ended up not getting any retribution for that action. Uh, it's a it's a I'm sin. I'm confessing to you now. I suppose, but there was no uh, retribution there. So we're watching the film that day, and we get to the fourth quarter, and we see this play, and I know what's happening. I know it's going to come, and so I see myself get knocked over. I mean, I'm, I'm running, and all of a sudden, wham, I'm down, and you can't see me anymore. I'm dead, and then, then we, we, we punt the ball. We get on defense, and we see, okay, we come back on offense, and then you see that play. What's interesting is I realized I went after the wrong guy. <laughs> the guy who hit me was another guy, and I, I, the guy was totally, he was in shock that I had that unprovoked, he had been uh, assaulted, uh, right? 
So I, I say that all to say is that uh, this game film gave me a perspective of something I was completely missing to my shame. I missed, the, I missed who hit me, and I took vengeance out on the wrong person. I said to say is when, when we're getting to Romans 12, we've seen 11 chapters of game film. We've seen exposition of the gospel, which orients us to think rightly about what we're to do, all right? What's, a, what's an appropriate response to what's been done? And that's why Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's going to say, therefore, I am appealing to you. So what's in view here is everything he said before, uh, particularly the earlier second, the verses. Like it was in the last verse we read, it was like, glory to God for his mercies. That's what we're saying. In light of his mercies, particularly in Christ, considering who we are, how undeserved we are, how merciful God's been to us, therefore we need to consider that as we, could, as we consider how to go forward. That's the game film we're seeing, right? How, how interesting that, that we will spend hours and hours and hours dissecting football, but this Romans, uh, we, we will spend almost no time on it. But this is, this is how God relates to Christians. This is amazing. This is this is how he saves us by his mercy, and it changes everything. It tells us why we're here. It tells us what we're here for. It tells us everything we need to know. I mean, if someone were to ask you, why are you sitting right there, you would respond with, because of the mercies of God. That's your answer. You are where you are. You're doing what you're doing now in response to the mercies of God. That's your reasonable just and holy and good answer because of the mercies of God. Well, uh, this week, Meredith and I had the great opportunity of attending a concert done by a Tom Petty tribute band. Okay? This band was a Tom Petty tribute band. They played over two, two hours of Tom Petty's greatest hits. They actually sounded like the real Tom Petty in his band. They were really, it was neat. Uh, it was a neat venue. It was the UCO Jazz Lab, which is a place where UCO uses to train performers of music. It was a very intimate gathering. We, were, we, we entered the uh, location and went and found our table, sat down, and we had a table of four, two spots reserved for Meredith and myself, and then two other people. We'll call them Bill and Carol. They show up. Bill and Carol show up after us. And we're waiting for the show to start, and we're chit-chatting, and it's very loud in there, and we can't really have a lot of conversation, but uh, Bill gets up and, and leaves the table, and, uh, and Carol responds back to me, and she says, well, so what do you do? Because I'd asked her, how do you, how did you, why, why are you here? I, I, you know, you ever sit in something in a, in a concert, and you're like, why are these people here? How did they get here? Especially this is a small group, right? I asked her why she was there, and, why, and she says, well, I don't really like Tom Petty even. My husband uh, is a fan, and, and he actually knows the drummer. I was like, well, that's interesting. I actually know the bass guy and the guy who plays Tom Petty. So I know these two guys, and she's, they're here because they have a connection to the drummer. So we're talking about that. She says, well, what do you do in real life, right? And I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church. And then, like, the show starts, and it's like, so, so she's like, oh, pastor of a church? What, what church? And I said, well, we're in Norman, first of all. And she's, I said, are you in Norman? And she's like, no, I mean, we're in Oklahoma City. And then so I was like, well, you know, uh, well, it's Trinity Presbyterian Church of Norman. Like, as, as, Tom, as like, I won't back down starts blasting. And I'm, so I'm like, so, like, I, so I'm like, well, uh, are, 
do you, do you go to church? And, and there's right next to me, and I'm like, Carol says, well, I'm Catholic. And, so, and she says, but, but my husband's Jewish. And so my head's about to explode. And I'm like, and I'm like so, so how did that work? I mean, like, how did that happen? What, what, give, I, there's so much story behind how that, how that occurred. I, I never, I'm never going to hear. I mean, like, that's a mystery. Bill and Carol, because we had two hours of Tom Petty, and, was, and we're tired, we got to go home. And so I never heard how, how that all went. I imagine that uh, Bill thought Carol was attractive and, and pursued her, and then uh, either she or he has no idea what their religious worldview is, and they decided to get married. Because they, I mean, like, if, you, if you know the, the law of Moses, it, it strictly forbids marrying someone outside of your faith, right, that doesn't believe in your God. And if you're Catholic, you can't even get married in a Catholic church if you're marrying someone who's not Catholic. There's like, there's a lot of red flags that should have been going off in this marriage and it never should have happened probably, right? If they were being consistent with what they say they believe, right? So I said, well, before I left, I said, well, you guys would probably make great Presbyterians. Why don't you come sit at our church sometime? We can help you out. But that's all, that, that's all I had. That, that's all I had. And so I wanted to run the game film and think, well, what could I have said? What should I, what, if I had to go again, what would I say? as don't come around here no more, and all these songs are going on. I'm like thinking, what should I have said? Why, well, I, I should have, I, I, I just feel like there's so much there. This is a person who has married someone who vi- violently disagrees with their, uh, with their view of how things go and who's the Savior and how it is. Like the Jewish folks, they've rejected Jesus, who is the Messiah that the Catholic Church would say they believe in. This woman, Carol. But Bill believes there's a Messiah to come, right? Not Jesus. That's a huge discrepancy, okay? Now, I tell you, there's a marriage between a Catholic and a Jewish person that is dysfunctional, completely goes against Romans 12.1. Read Romans 12.1. It says, you shall only marry people who agree with you. It doesn't say that. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It says everything about marriage and nothing about marriage. It says everything about marriage because it says because of his mercies and who we are in Christ, we examine everything about our lives according to his mercies for him. It says there that we are going to present our bodies there as, and when it says bodies, it's talking about our whole person. Everything about us is presented to God in light of his mercies. He's urging us, Paul is, to consider the mercies of God and respond appropriately. If you're a Christian, he's saying that this marriage is a sin flat out because it's forbidden in his revealed will. And so, Carol, if, he, if she's, you know, listening or heard this, I would say that that's a sin first to marry him initially, right? Um, if you're a Christian, you embrace a different system. Christianity is not just one ethical system among many possible ethical systems with many possible religions out there. No, it's the one true religion. It's the one true and living God who reveals himself through the scriptures. That's what we believe. The other major religions, though they have parallel, similar ethical teachings, love your neighbor, be kind, you know, forgive people, etc., etc., be nice, golden rule, Christianity is foremost not a religious ethical system. It's a statement 
about the game film of history, what Jesus has done in history, what he actually did, not what we should be doing, right? It's not, oh, I, I like these rules and not those rules. No, it's, it's exactly the opposite. It's what Jesus did because of who he is and who the Father is. So if your husband's worldview denies Christ, it's like denying everything, right? It, you know, it doesn't mean that, uh, that, that Bill might not uh, someday come to know Christ. But at that moment, he is rejecting Christ. Because we believe that someday he might be a believer, but he is not now. And so they are radically opposed in what they say they believe. So what God is not doing is saving people who are worthy, right? If you know you're in Christ and you've made terrible mistakes in your life, you've, you've done the wrong things, well, you know that it wasn't because of your lack of sin that God loved you in the first place. Because it says in Romans that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says that no one is righteous, no, not one. Everyone's full of evil, and evil proceeds out in our bodies. According to the law, we all fail. But... Now, righteousness has been made known apart from the law. Through the death of Christ and through his fulfilling of righteousness, we can, by faith, be justified freely by his grace. By faith alone, we can be declared righteous. Not on the basis of works. It's on the basis of mercy. So the first point, of course, is that when you're talking about what is the flow of grace, it's that the whole mercy of God to the whole Christ's sacrifice makes whole worshipers of God. The whole mercy of God is the reason we're here. It's the source of all good. It's why we sit where we sit. It's who we are. He made us. We are, like Romans 9 says, the pottery that the potter creates. We are what we are because our creator made us this way. And we are what we are if we're in Christ because the Redeemer has made us this way and the Spirit is making us this way. He's the source of all good. All our good comes from within. That's what Romans 1 through 11, the game film, teaches us as we rewind and rewind and watch again and we dissect the verses and the chapters and the flow of it. We were all in Adam or we're all in Christ. By the mercy of God, we're in Christ and not Adam. And we've been risen and made alive with Christ. We once were dead, but now we've been raised with Christ. And that we know that we're, going, we're just as good as glorified as could be because we're in Christ. And he never loses any of us. We know this in spite of our sin. So that's what Christianity is. Uh, it's not some club of people who do the right thing and not the wrong thing and believe this thing and that other thing. Well, we do have beliefs, but they're centered on the person and work of Christ and his plan for us which it centers and it begins with the mercy of God, his whole mercy, not a mix of mercy and a mix of our righteousness and goodness, but it's, no, 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 completely God's mercy. That's what he says, in light of God's mercy, not thinking about yourself and how righteous you are, but thinking about God's mercy towards you. It's mercy. Mercy means God withholding what you are meriting. He's keeping it back from you. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve, but mercy is preventing you from receiving what you should receive according to who you are. Now, 
So when we're talking about salvation in the Christian worldview, what we're talking about is not, that, not necessarily that God saves you from your sins, but when salvation is spoken of in Scripture, what God is saving you from is from God. Because God is holy. You're not holy. If you stand in His presence, you and your sin will demand your life. You will have to pay the weights of your sin. What salvation is, is God saving you from God, meaning God's wrath. In Christ, it says in Romans 3.26, is that He was a propitiation for our sins, meaning He was a satisfaction of God's wrath in our place. So God saves you from His wrath by His mercy through a substitute. God's mercy is the only thing holding us together in this world. We have nothing to do with it. He saves us from what we deserve by His mercy. Now, let's be clear here. What, what Carol did is, is not, the one I was talking to, is out of accord with her identity. But we do that all the time. We act out of accord with our identity all the time. That's why Paul says, I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers. We're all on the same level here. Though he's the apostle, he calls us brothers. He says, I'm urging you, according to the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? When we're talking about knowing who we are, we cannot know ourselves apart from knowing who God is as a creator and as he shows mercy to us in, in Christ our Savior. We must live in light of that. If we're living, making decisions about our life outside of that, we're living foolishly and in rebellion against God. So this God is not some God she's heard of or been taught about. This God is readily known through reading his Bible or her Bible and our Bible. And I'm assuming that she may have, this woman, Carol, may have a sense that God might not be happy to, that much with her, but for some reason that God is not important enough to investigate how and why he might be unhappy with her because God's inconsequential to her everyday life, apparently, because she doesn't ask those questions of what this means to the everyday, to all my decisions. There are people who say they're Christians like Carol, everywhere. And God is not important to everyday life. God was important to get me out of hell, maybe. I made a decision at camp, and, and then I'm, I'm kind of waiting to escape this world. Uh, but the bodily, everyday existence is just not a part of life that they think about in relation to God. But what this says is it completely destroys that view because it says, by God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what it says in verse 1. So when it says their bodies, that's a very shocking word there because in, in the early first century there, uh, Greek philosophy, the Stoics, uh, the Gnostics even com coming after that, would believe that it doesn't matter what you do with your bodies because our bodies are just prisons. We're waiting to escape. The spirit's good, but the body's bad. And so they think that the body's not important. So what he's saying here is he's using body as an appeal to our whole person. So what we do mentally, physically, everything, 
matters to God. All the decisions we make with our, with our mouth, with our hands, with our feet, with our thoughts, they all matter what we think upon. Because of his kindness, because of his patience, because of his love, because of his grace, because of his justification based solely on a substitutionary atonement by Christ. Because of these things, how we deal with our bodies matters. Our bodies matter. Our physical relationships and, and existence matters. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So let's talk about what is this living sacrifice. What is this? How can you be a living sacrifice? Well, the whole way we understand who Jesus is, well, one of the big ways we understand him is that he is our sacrifice. Okay, so he is, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says that Christ executes the office of a priest. He executes the office of a priest as a redeemer. Now, how does he do that? It says Christ executes the office of a priest in question 25 in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. That's what I'm talking about. He offers himself up as a sacrifice once for all to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and making continual intercession for us. That's how Christ executes the office of a priest, by the once for all offering up himself as a sacrifice. So a priest in the Old Testament would offer up a sacrifice for the people. But it wasn't himself. This is unique. Christ is going to be the priest and the sacrifice. Why was the priesthood instituted in the Old Testament at all? Well, we see from the very outset of Genesis 2 and 3 in the garden that when Adam hides and Adam and Eve hide from God in Genesis 3, God comes to them and then he slaughters an animal and covers them from in their shame and gives them clothing, right? And you see in Cain and Abel that there was one brother, uh, the first two, uh, that offered up a, an animal sacrifice. Melchizedek was given a sacrifice by Abraham. And then Jacob gave a sacrifice in, in Genesis. They would set up these altars where God meets with them. And they would slay an animal as a work of sacrifice to their God. And this is not unique necessarily to Yahweh and his people, Abraham and others. Uh, Noah uh, did the same there. But, but why, would, why would they do this? Well, everyone was doing this, kind of. This was a religious thing that was going all over the place. Uh, where did they come from? It came from the garden, right? The knowledge of God sacrificing an animal came from the garden. But it got dispersed all over the world. And people started doing this. And why did they think they did it? Well, a lot of people did it because they wanted to feed their gods, with these, with these animals they would slay and give them to the gods, feeding the gods. Well, in Psalm 50, it said, God says, I don't need your food. I have enough. I don't need your sacrifices. I desire your spirit, your heart. I don't want your food. I don't need this. I'm not a, you don't feed me. I feed you. As you consider that, once, once they uh, uh, were a people called out of Egypt, Moses was given requirements for priests and requirements for a tabernacle structure and a temple. And sacrifices are what Leviticus 1 through 7 are all about. There was numerous ones. There were two kinds. There were animal ones and non-animal ones. There was whole burnt offerings of animals. And you, there was uh, even, even provisions for poor and rich. If you didn't have enough uh, resources to provide an, uh, a, a calf or a sheep or a goat, you could take 
birds or even a specific amount of flour to sacrifice. They had all kind of regulations because at the essence of a person's relationship to God, sacrifice was necessary. A sacrifice was needed to bring you into peace and reconciliation with God by means of a representative, a priest. A priest would bring a sacrifice. A prophet would tell you what God says, but a priest would represent you to God. So Jesus becomes the true priest and representing us to God, not by means of bulls or goats, but by his own body. He does this with his active obedience and his passive obedience. From the very moment he is born, he lives a life of sacrifice where he fulfills all righteousness. That's his active obedience. But his work on the cross is where he says in John, no one takes my life, but I lay it down freely, right? I'm offering up my body for you as a sacrifice to bring divine justice under control, to satisfy divine justice for the sake of my people. So here we have a sacrifice that is living. Now, when you think about Jesus, he never sinned, and he was crucified. This is a dead sacrifice, but we're called to be living sacrifices. How is that just? How is that fair? Jesus is killed, had no no sins of his own, but we live and we have lots of sin of our own. It's, it's It's the great exchange. It's that Jesus, the suffering servant, as Isaiah 53 says, bore your sins in his body. He bore your iniquity in his body that we might be righteous, that we might bear his righteousness. So we put on those robes of righteousness through faith. We, be, we become declared what he is as he was declared to be what we were, and he dies. So he offers up his body as a dead sacrifice that rose from the dead on the third day that we might become living sacrifices. We're like the bread offering. We're the life offering. We don't, we don't need the blood and the bloody sacrifices We offer up our bodies day after day without blood because the blood has already been paid and fulfilled for us in Christ. He's the whole sacrifice. We don't need to get more serious than that. We don't need to go above and beyond what Christ has done in order to to win God's favor because his favor is ours because that sacrifice is enough. It's a whole sacrifice. It's everything we will ever need. He accomplished. The work is finished. It's all done because Jesus did it. That's what he does as a priest. And he's continually eating, interceding for us as a priest on the merits of his once-for-all sacrifice and not ours. So we're talking about we still offer up sacrifices. We don't bring sacrifices to an altar and slay them with blood. But we are called to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, our whole person as this living sacrifice, right? We, as a sacrifice, crawl off the altar because... The blood's already been spilled. We offer up ourselves. Like Abraham offers up Isaac and says, the Lord will provide the lamb. And he does. He says, no, 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 don't slay Isaac, Abraham. I will provide. And he does in that moment with another animal. But that animal was a picture of the animal, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, Christ. The, the bloody sacrifice has atoned for us and it continues to be our continual hope to be with God. Now, we have whole sacrifice for us. 
We are pardoned. We are righteous. We are priests today. We go and we offer up sacrifices on the basis of Jesus, bearing his spirit, no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but, but renewed. And we'll look more about that next week. Um, okay, so the third thing we've got to know here is that we have this mercy that is the cause. Secondly, we have the whole Christ who is our reconciliation, the whole priesthood of Christ and his sacrifice, which is the bloody sacrifice. But we are, as worshipers now, whole worshipers of God, completely devoted to him, right? The gospel brings a reconstitution of what we were made for. We're made for God. Let me read you a couple places. Second Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 8, 3 through 5 says, is that they gave according to their means. They gave of their money for the, for the need in Jerusalem. They, they gave relief to the saints. And they did this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God. In 1 Corinthians 6.13, it says, Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and he will raise us up by his power. God says, in, in, the, in five verses later, flee from sexual immorality. Every sin com- uh, a man commits is, against, uh, is outside the body, but sexual immorality, a person sins against his own body. But you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. His mercies. You were bought with a price, so therefore glorify God in your body. You see the flow? The mercies of God come through Christ for you, and now, therefore, you glorify God with your body. That's the consistent message that the apostles and prophets speak of throughout the Bible. Our mouths were full of curses and bitterness. Our feet were swift to shed blood, as Romans 3 says. We worship the creation and not the creator. But now, with our mouths, we confess the Lord Jesus is our Savior, and we worship him alone and we don't let sin reign in our mortal bodies any longer and obey its passions. As Romans 6, 13 says, we present our bodily members not to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present them to God who has been brought back from death to life. Our members are presented to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin has no dominion over you since you are no longer under law but under grace. So grace, we don't use it as a, as a reason to just sin is what, all we want, but we uh, are compelled by grace to start to give our bodies, present them, yield them to God, not to be killed, not to be burned, but given to God out of glorious apprehension and grateful apprehension of his mercy. The sacrifice has been made for us in God's mercy to prevent us from what we would receive if we were to stand on our own, but a priest has gone before us and borne the wrath for us, for our sake. We can offer our whole life as a living sacrifice to God in Christ, under his mercy. His mercy compels us to do so. All, that, all the good works you do come from a grateful, wonderful reliance and seeking to glorify God in light of that because of what he's done for you. To, to not to pay him back, you could never do so, but to show worship to him. It's your holy, pleasing, spiritual worship there. So, so that, that word there that's translated spiritual worship in the end of, of verse 1, 
it's actually a, a word that looks like logic. It's your logical worship, right? It's, it's only used two times in the New Testament. One time is in 1 Peter 2.2 2, where it says, uh, desire spiritual milk, right? Well, they translate it spiritual here, but it really should be, as, as Doug Moo says in his commentary, uh, it could be spiritual, it could be logical or reasonable, but it's better thought of as true because the reasonable and the spiritual thing, which is meant from the life given to you by the Spirit, is true worship, giving God glory with all that we are, everything that we have uh, in our body and our soul and our mind. It applies for a total, bold commitment to Christ in everything, everything we have. Cran- uh, Cranfield says, uh, one of the commentators says, the intelligent understanding of worship, that is, the worship which is consonant with the truth of the gospel, is indeed nothing less than the offering up of one's whole self in the course of one's concrete living in inward thoughts, feelings, and aspirations, but also in one's word and deeds. So you could think, wow, man, I am falling down short on that. My whole life, every thought, every deed, completely devoted to God. Wow, I am failing big time in that. Why would God even like me anymore, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sinning so bad, if you really think about it. Well, the good news is the mercy of God is sufficient for you. His blood is sufficient. Isaac Watts says, Love so amazing, so, demi- so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You see, grace is received, and then we seek to live grace. We live not because we're worthy, and so we live now not to earn our worthiness. We live according to God's grace. As we grow older, we realize that this idea about religion is completely bogus, that the guys that are really spiritual and really religious are the ones that are in ministry. The guys that are doing missions. They're guys that are you know, professors even, right? But no, everyone is called to wholly be devoted in their whole body, their whole thoughts, their whole actions to God all the time, making every decision. There is no distinction between clergy and laity. None. Every person is called to this complete devotion. All believers called to be totally committed to Christ. Now, when you think about this, this game film gives us the opportunity, this gospel, that is, gives us the opportunity to have strategies that work. Coaches watch game film after game film after game film to have strategies that work. And when you see you're falling short over and over again, you're not wholly committed, you're not committed enough, you wish you were, you're only 30% of the way there, then you're only 40% of the way there, you're only 20% one day, you look at yourself and you're like, I am a total failure. And the gospel reorients and says, wait, God doesn't love you because of your success. He loves you because of Christ. He's loved you from eternity and who he is. He's chosen you and he sent Christ for you. He will give you all things. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. And that's the, that's the flow that leads to the repentance of sins, right? That's the flow that leads. It leads from mercy. It doesn't lead from seeking to justify my own self. Now, I'll ask you again, as I asked Carol, and she asked me, why are you here? Why are you in worship? You're not here because you're earning points. You're not here because you're earning points. You have an infinite riches of points in Christ. You're here because of his mercies. You love to hear his mercies. You need his mercy, and you look for it, and you know it's finished. There's no dying here. The dying's already done. But we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices 
to joyfully experience God's work in our lives. That's why we do it. So when we treat our husband, maybe our wife, the person who cuts our hair, the way we treat this person, the way we treat the people who serve us and whom we serve, our bosses, our, our clients, our employees, the person who brings us our Chick-fil-A, whatever the persons we treat, we're doing so not to earn points. We're doing so to express ourselves, offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And that's why we do it. We are living sacrifices. This is our holy, acceptable to God, our reasonable spiritual true worship. It makes sense, but we have to see it. We have to reason to it, and we have to look at our sin. We have to look, well, there's a lot of sin in me, but there's a lot of righteousness in Christ, so I want to be where he is because he loves me in spite of this. I want to be where he is. I want to embrace him, and I want to do so through serving in the ways that he's going to tell me to do so. I'm going to look at what he says in Romans 12 and following. Romans 1 through 11 is the exposition of grace. Romans 12 through 16, the rest of the book, is the exhortation to apply the grace. It's the indicative and the imperative of what to do. There's very little imperatives before this verse, but this is the whole gospel. It's the, it's the grief, it's the grace, and the gratitude, the whole thing. It leads us to become whole, living sacrifices toward God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would lead us into all truth to know why we're here, to know uh, not only where we are, where we, how we've gotten here, but what we're here to do to offer up our, soul, our sacrifices to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we consider the Lord's Supper, this is a joyous occasion. It's a wonderful thing because we get to look at the Lord's Supper and look at these elements and say again and again, this is why, this is why I'm here. I'm nourished again and again by the body and blood of Christ. I'm saved from the wrath of God by the body and blood of Christ. By his righteousness and his atoning blood, it's enough for me to save me to the uttermost forevermore. By the one act of Christ, I have communion and peace and reconciliation with God. Forevermore, I cannot lose it through faith in him. I am secure. It is my, it is my nourishment. I, I discern the mercies of God by the bread that is broken and the, and the wine that is, is poured out, as the body is broken, the bread is broken, the wine is poured out, the blood is poured out for my sin. I consider that. It is not bloody. The blood has already been paid. The priest has done his work. It is a, it is the, living, the living sacrifices remain, though. And I'm energized, I'm nourished, I'm, I'm inspired by this each and every Sunday. And I pray that you will be today, too that you will take this in and receive the meaning of it, that you are his and he is yours. Uh, if you're in Christ, this is for you. If you're trusting in him alone for salvation, this is for you to encourage you to be a sign of your redemption and to be a seal and a guarantee that it is true by faith. If it's not for you, then it means you're not in Christ. You don't know him. You're not part of his body yet. I would implore you to become a believer. I would implore you to know him, to seek him, and to trust him and what the scriptures say about him. Christ, the redeemer of sinners, the priest who offered up his body as a true sacrifice for sins. Now, with that said, we should come to the table with desire. Desire to be nourished. If you're a sinner in need of grace, this is for you. If, you're, if you don't need his grace, it's not for you. 
If you're a member of his church, if you're baptized, this is for you. If you're not a member of his church and you're not baptized, meaning you're not part of the body of Christ, it's not for you. It's a distinction. If you're in Christ, it's for you. If you're not in Christ, you need to come to Christ because the wrath of God remains upon all who are outside of Christ. But the wrath of God is satisfied and the broken body and blood of Christ is payment for that to make us right. Okay, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that this body, this blood, 